0: Welcome to Coming Out Evil. I'm Harley Honey. And I'm Mixa Dusa.
1: Join our descent into villainy.
0: All right, so let's just get into it. You know, what is flagging? So flagging in a general sense is a code right that's dependent on signals that are not intended to be legible beyond a queer audience so flagging is a way of subtly and safely saying that you are queer without having to out yourself to straight people who may be around so flagging has been a part of queer culture forever and that's because it wasn't always safe to be outwardly queer you know our queer existence has always been a subject of persecution in so many ways and only recently do we have the ability to safely be ourselves in public. So flagging has always been necessary as a part of our queer culture in order to be safe since it's a little safer, and safe is subjective of course, but since it's a little bit safer to be outwardly gay in public, flagging has, as a cultural phenomenon, kind of fallen to the wayside. It's, it's gone in and out of popularity for decades, right? But before Grindr, right, queer people essentially wore their preferences on their sleeves you probably are most familiar with the hanky code, which is going to be a big, big chunk of what we're going to talk about today. But that would not be the only way that people have flagged, right? So there are hankies, of course, there are also key rings, nail polish, etc. So it is super popular to use bandanas to communicate sexual orientation, availability, fetishes and kinks that you're interested in, and the role that you play in those fetishes and kinks. Flagging really communicates a lot. So back in the day, it was necessary to be discreet when you were looking for people to form partnerships with. You needed a way to quickly kind of identify interest and identify what needs that person had or expectations that that person had. And bandanas or hankies were already available in a variety of colors and prints. And you're probably familiar with seeing them worn, like wrapped around people's biceps or as like a neck decoration or worn on people's wrists or the famous, you know, tucked into the back pocket. The variety of colors and the placement all became key parts of the flagging system and all of those things put together that coding of messages that signal someone's sexual proclivities that system became known as the hanky code we're going to get more into it later but the kind of traditional handkerchief colors and their meanings are gray for bondage black for s&m which is sadomasochism blue for oral purple for trans- trans or non-binary folks, gold for threesomes, brown for, well, we know what brown is for, yellow for water sports, green for hustling, pink for dildo play, red for hand stuff, bead fisting, (laughs) and orange for adventurous, etc. Like there is so much... So let's jump into the history of flagging. And to do that, we need to learn a little bit about hankies. What's a hanky? So in Rajasthan, which is a state in Northern India, men used to wear bandana fabrics as turban cloths during festivals. So there were lots of imported textiles prior to the 19th century, and much like those, they were also considered a luxury item at the time. So how did this luxury item make its way all the way to being a symbol or emblem for the gays? Well, I'm gonna try my best to walk you through it. Essentially, wealthy men at the time wore bandanas as cravats or in pockets of their trousers or coats, and that would communicate at the time elevated economic or social status. And I think that it's important to make note of the fact that hankies have kind of always been used to indicate something so they're not related to queerness or gay culture at the time yet of course but the tradition of using a hanky to signal something else started here once it became possible to produce hankies easily right with the advent of domestic production bandanas became a really staple part of working class style it was a utilitarian fabric right you could carry your hanky around in the mechanic shop and use it to wipe the grease off your forehead you feel me so domestic production led to working class people using hankies and it also kind of became associated with a more egalitarian or like a less fancy form of masculine dress so hankies were worn by people like artists or cowboys. American sailors also wore neckerchiefs and black women used bandanas as head wrappings. They also were used often to commemorate important historical events, promote political campaigns, celebrate military accomplishments, and that's been going on between the 18th and 20th centuries. Like that was happening for a hot second. and by the time it was the 19th century the ubiquitous use of bandanas in political campaigns even associated certain bandanas with certain political candidates like it was common that bandanas were used to indicate or represent a particular person place thing idea So essentially like the movement from working-class masculinity to working-class queer people was not a big leap, though there were systems that predated hankies, like ways that people could visually identify themselves as queer to other queer people without straight people knowing or clocking it. One way is that a lot of queer subcultures are identified with a certain style of dress, right? Like Cross-dressing, for example, was a very loud marker of sexual identity or queerness to people. You know, queer men adopting feminine, quote unquote, dress, or queer women adopting, quote unquote, masculine dress. So that's a very early, very basic way that people visually identified themselves as queer. There was also the aestheticism movement, and that was in the mid-19th century, also called the aesthetic movement, and that was just the idea of kind of rejecting mass industrialization and favoring like art that is meaningful and emotional so meaningful emotional art really gained popularity during the mid-19th century and this kind of opened the doors for effeminates presenting queer men of certain class to identify themselves as dandies i'm not gonna get too much into what a dandy is in this podcast episode but it was essentially just a 19th century male archetype that was a sophisticated artistic vibe traits that are associated with like what you could call male femininity right and so effeminate presenting queer men found a home in the aestheticism movement speaking of the aestheticism movement you might recognize the name oscar wilde He was one of the most famous dandies, so to say. He was what people consider to be a visible representative of the aesthetic movement. He dressed in 18th century knickers and jewel tones and other non-traditional accoutrements. Wilde countered the kind of blandness of male dress that were popular in late Victorian. England. So that's why you might hear about Oscar Wilde often when talking about queer history. One of the things he wore was actually a green carnation and he wore that on his lapel. The use of the green carnation kind of signaled how he was connected to the aesthetic movement and it also signaled his queerness. So if you see green or green carnations places, that is often an emblem of queerness the aestheticism movement kind of came to a swift end due to some hefty criminalization of queerness that occurred. So when the criminalization of homosexuality was beginning to be enforced in the 19th century, the way that people were found to be guilty, you know, was basically appearance-based. So Ambrose August Tardau's medical-legal study of assaults on decency, whew, that was a mouthful, 1857, identified gay people as carrying in one hand a handkerchief, flowers, or some needlework And then he goes on to say, such is the strange, revolting, and rightfully suspect physiognomy that betrays the gay. (laughs) Like, huh? That's so much. Like that's so extra who hurt him honestly like why is it supposed to be insulting that someone's carrying around flowers and needlework sounds lit but i digress eventually oscar wilde back to him eventually his appearance and you know his being in relationships with dudes but kind of brought some scrutiny onto him and he wound up being convicted in 1895 and sentenced to prison so that's fun So at this point, we're back to needing some discreet ways to signal that we are homosexual, right? Just kind of dressing in a flamboyant fashion is not safe at this point. So what do people do? Well, we turn to some subtle articles of clothing. The use of bold colors, specifically red and green, became the ideal colors for communicating, being a dandy, being flamboyant, being gay, you know? Like, how do you show people you have some sugar in the tank? At the time, it's probably going to involve a spicy color palette, especially since men at the time wore really muted color palette a red tie like something just as simple as just a red tie said a lot to other queer people right straight people might not pick up a red tie or a red bow tie as something sus but other queer people would see a red bow tie and go oh like is he you know so yeah In Rolf Werther's autobiography, he described how he used to dress and he talked about that when he was a young person in the 1890s, he wore a quote unquote large red neck bow with fringed ends her (laughs) also also the color green was a big identifier as well in the 1940s thomas painter identified green suits as quote-unquote distinctively homosexual attire he also talked about how dark brown and gray suede shoes were quote-unquote practically a homosexual monopoly. Another author, Shauncey, adds that green suits were actually so bold that few dared wear them. So, I guess a whole green suit loses the subtlety a little bit, but it does just sound fire honestly. But the red tie was really the the best kept secret as a gay signifier because it was only famous in certain circles and like we talked about before such an important part of it is it not being easily identified by people outside of your in-group so straight people needed to not be able to tell what it meant and the red tie just was the best at doing that. In his biography, Harry Hay talked about how he was familiar with this kind of color coding by describing his pastime of cruising. And he talked about that if he saw that someone had a red tie or a lavender handkerchief, he might be quote unquote interesting. Like what a what a use of language. Also, according to Jennifer Craik, those suede shoes retained gay connotations into the 1950s and 1960s so that is sincerely not that long ago it was also considered flamboyant to dress this way like to combine these different color codes because the male fashion at the time was so muted and so dark So a brightly colored pocket square or something like that easily identified you as the 20th century dandy you know something else that became popular at this time was earrings that were worn by men also communicating queer sexuality and this persists like well into the 20th century and the 21st century and i would be remiss if while talking about all these color codes that predate the hanky code to not also talk about the color code that was instituted by the nazi regime at this time so the nazi regime of the 1930s to 1940s germany imposed the use of sartorial codes these color codes to identify prisoners as it related to their quote-unquote crimes right and that among those crimes included homosexuality Initially, a yellow stripe or bar inscribed with a capital A or a large black dot and the number 175 would indicate queer prisoners, but at some point a more elaborate color-coding system for prisoners was developed where an inverted pink triangle was sewn onto someone's uniform to identify actual or just perceived homosexuals. And this inverted triangle is later reclaimed as a symbol of LGBT identity. So I want to unpack that a little bit and I will start this segment of the conversation letting you know that I am not Jewish, okay? So take anything I say with a grain of salt, of course I did my best to research but at the end of the day I am not Jewish, okay? So at this time triangles of various colors were used to identify categories of undesirable prisoners. So there were yellow for Jewish people, brown for Romani people, red for political prisoners, green for like other generic criminals, black for anti-socialists, etc. It goes on and pink for homosexuals. And the pink triangles were also slightly larger than the other triangles. So guards could easily identify them from a distance. And it's said that those who wore these pink triangles were singled out often and received incredibly harsh treatments um, by both. Guards and other inmates or other prisoners. I'm not sure which of those words is better there, Hmm. were often mistreated by other people who were being held in captivity, as well as the guards who were holding them prisoner there. At the end of the war, when concentration camps were supposedly liberated, those with pink triangles were often among those who got left behind and who continued to live a nightmare in these camps. After the war, the symbol was inverted and used as a symbol for the AIDS crisis. The logic here was supposed to be that the AIDS crisis was in a similar fashion taking gay people away and only gay people. And this is not to say that straight people did not get AIDS, but, you know, we we can talk at length about how AIDS disproportionately impacted the queer community and it really decimated us. So a lot of people felt that the government's lack of intervention constituted a genocide of sorts and so that's why the pink triangle was used it was supposed to be a powerful and impactful image of course there was pushback here so in 1993 most notably a queer magazine called 10 percent a writer on it uh, named sarah hart criticized the use of the pink triangle as an emblem of queer identity she said that as a symbol of shared victimization it is indefensible to equate the discrimination and harassment of the present with the savagery inflicted upon the lesbians and gay men of the holocaust trivializes their suffering. Like I said I'm not Jewish but it does strike me strange as well to use a symbol like that for another movement like to adopt it in such a way especially if the community it's being adopted from is not completely on board. But that is just my opinion. Uh, So that's why you'll see like pink triangles also used as an emblem for queer people. So now at this point we've kind of entered the 1950s just to kind of reorient ourselves and it's the cold war right and during the cold war we saw that being gay got very much connected to just being generally morally perverse right everything that was bad about a person could be explained by that they were gay at this time basically and this phenomenon was known as the lavender scare if you know anything about the cold war and the political climate at the time then it might strike you as similar to the red scare and it's definitely supposed to be a play off of that. I like the way that Benjamin Shepard puts it. He says, in the 1950s discourse, communism, homosexuality, and sexual perversion were linked into a single deviant storyline because of this criminalization and link to deviancy presenting as very masculine and acting very masculine became a kind of vital and central step in overcoming government-sanctioned hunts right and it is possible that that kind of repressed homophobic climate socially in the 1950s is something that prompted an influence on queer men's style by working class culture so to put it more plainly working class style started influencing queer fashion right so a masculine presenting queer male identity formed among bikers right military people cowboys and other blue collar professions that were dominated by men so like think to yourself what kind of costume you're imagining when you think of a male stripper that's the vibe you you feel me you see where i'm coming from yeah yeah In Biker Bar, Bikes, Beer, and Boys, A Playful Look at the Roots of the Leather Bar, the author and also illustrator Tom Magister talked about a code that existed amongst bikers, the positioning of your belt buckle. I actually didn't know about this before researching for this episode, so I thought that this was pretty cool, but basically in the early 1950s, moving your belt buckle to the left or right instead of just the center position actually indicated a subtle clue of whether you wanted to give or take you know or whether you were like feeling dominant or submissive so left of center was a top and right of center was a bottom basically another queer code that developed was hanging keys from your belt loop pocket. And this this was already a common practice among spikers and other blue collar workers, but it got appropriated as a queer thing, tee um, <laughs> So previous codes were ambiguous. You know, this new code would further advertise your sexual availability and role because the visibility of the keys told you whether the person who was wearing them was a seeker of a sexual encounter and also whether the keys hung from the left or right side identified what your sexual role was as well. So yeah, a a little bit less ambiguous than the belt buckle. And so that was, you know, an interesting advancement at the time. And that nuance was possibly a precursor to the way that the hanky code binary is constructed. And we're getting closer, we're getting closer to talking about the hanky code, okay? So it became popular in the 1970s when gay men put handkerchiefs in certain pockets and that was meant to signify what sexual acts they were interested in and also whether they were interested in giving or receiving. And hookup culture was a big thing amongst gay men at the time you know people were having sex you know they they were doing it they were doing it when they wanted to do it and how they wanted to do it per so (laughs) that was the first queer sartorial code to communicate sexual orientation or identity sexual availability and sexual fetishes so these little pieces of fabric were communicating a lot of information and these codes being with something as ubiquitous as a handkerchief made it possible for queer people to also be signaling queerness while participating in contemporary fashion at the time so the basics of how it works the dominant or active person or insertive participant the quote-unquote top wears the bandana in a left pocket wears the bandana in the left pocket and the sub or passive or receptive person the bottom wears the bandana in the right back pocket so individuals interested in both of those activities were known as verses by the way in case you're curious Also some other vocab, the searching of, you know, looking for a sexual partner by walking around a public or private area, uh, that's known as cruising. If you remember back to us talking about the red tie, there's a quote that I found of someone talking about this in the context of cruising, and they say the red tie was famous only in certain circles. It was a subtle signal likely to be understood in some context more than others a man wearing a red neck tie on a well known new york cruising street, such as Riverside Drive or 14th Street, for instance, was likely to be labeled a ferry. So the concept of cruising is very much linked with flagging, right? And other important vocabulary is the word flagging, right? Because I've said that so many times, but flagging is just the act of cruising while invoking the use of the Hanky Code. So if you're cruising and you're also using the Hanky Code, you're flagging. Let's talk a little bit about the distribution of these hankies. There were lots of places where you could buy handkerchiefs, they were pretty ubiquitous article of clothing. The Trading Post, an LGBT novelty and erotic merchandise store in San Francisco, started promoting handkerchiefs in the store and putting cards with their meanings out also available around 1971. So that's pretty early on that people are explicitly promoting these handkerchiefs as explicitly for the purpose of flagging. because. They they're being sold with what are called hanky code decoder lists. So these decoder lists were created to decipher color fetish role associations of the hanky code because there were so many. Like I think they're up to 65 or something variations and meanings for different handkerchiefs that you can be wearing. Also the hanky code is also known as the bandana color code and the handkerchief code. Let's talk about popularization, right? There are lots of stories about what exactly made the hanky code official, right? What brought the hanky code here? And there are two like main most popular stories that I came across in my research. One is that it dates back to the mid 19th century when the population of San Francisco was kind of blowing up and it was made up of a lot of men who were traveling there because of work and so there were more men than women proportionally and men were forced to dance together at socials since the pairing wasn't 50 50. So some men wore blue bandanas to show that they were going to do the male or the lead part and other people would wear red bandanas to show that they were going to be doing the following role in the dance or the female role in the dance an alternative story that I came across was that it was just suggested by a journalist in the 1970s. So a journalist at the Village Voice supposedly just claimed that it would be easier for gay men to pick each other up if they didn't have to rely on wearing keys in their back pockets. And they suggested handkerchiefs as a way to announce one's sexual position. Spicy. Supposedly, the popularization of hankies a little bit declined in the 1980s because of the HIV and AIDS crisis, leading to, you know, a decrease in hookup culture. People were having less anonymous sex than they were having before. And so the hanky code kind of shrunk in use to just being a kind of symbol or like having a subcultural status in the BDSM community. But of course, because the hanky code just won't quit um, in the late 1990s into the early 2000s, there's been a an uprising in interest in the hanky code and in people wanting to use the hanky code again and when the use of certain colors or tones seemed to be exhausted other forms of textiles got used to represent like other subcommunities. so people started using like flannel and lace and dual colors and non-textile objects all in combination to kind of create a new more modern hanky code right? Which is interesting because the code or the way that the code was used in the past, kind of closer to its advent, you wouldn't do too many combinations of these things for fear of being clocked as queer and being criminalized. But now it is, for lack of a better word, safer to be visibly queer, people are using the hanky code as a way to signal to each other, but also just like as a point of queer fashion, which is really interesting. Okay, now I wanna talk a little bit about queer women in all of this, right? Like where do the sapphics sit in the code history? In addition to queer men, you know, lesbians also wore their keys hanging on chains from their pockets to indicate a top or bottom. And it was very similar to the hanky code rules in the use of left and right. Queer women who were involved in the leather scene were their keys on the right side to indicate that they were a bottom and a left to indicate that they were a top. Also, a more formal adoption of the hanky code, so this is documented, right, was when the Samois, or S-A-M-O-I-S, a a female-centered BDSM social group, created, printed, and distributed their own lesbian hanky code to their membership, and this happened in their 1978 newsletters. Ever since then, there has always been a coexisting lesbian hanky code alongside the original hanky code that was intended for queer men. So, during a time when women were, you know, seeking rights and sexual freedom, the lesbian hanky code was kind of a logical progression. Also, bouncing off of the hanky code, In the last decade, femmes in the queer community have developed kind of our own form of flagging in response to femme invisibility. So if you listened to our second episode talking about femmes and the history of the word femme and all of that good stuff, you know that we've been invisible in sapphic communities for a while. So femmes hopping on these kind of femme flagging procedures, is really wonderful and interesting and exciting to me so you know femme invisibility just to recap is the term for what femme sapphics experience when they need to convince other sapphics that they are in fact queer you know like needing to prove ourselves It's the lack of being seen as lesbian. You know, for femmes, bandanas or keys would stand out more than be discreet because it's just not a natural part of our fashion for a lot of people. This is not meant to be a blanket statement about all femmes, but just very often in femme fashion it's hard to incorporate something like a bandana or a keyring because these were originated in working class masculine fashion. That's where it was appropriated from, so it doesn't quite fit. And how do femmes? figure this out well there's the famous manicure flagging procedure that'll signal to nearby queers that you're a woman who's attracted to other women right so primarily you can paint all your nails one color and have like one accent nail normally the ring or middle fingernail a different color that is the corresponding flagging color so a pink manicure with a glitter ring finger could mean femme for femme for example and femme for femme just in case you don't know means you are a femme who prefers to date other femmes and like I said before the meanings parallel traditional hanky code colors which we will go over in depth in just a moment I'm sure you're excited about that the only thing about this form of flagging is that it's a little hard to make it recognizable to a lot of queer women since accent nails kind of just became popular amongst all women at some point so it might be hard to determine whether someone is attempting to flag or if they're just someone who wanted an accent nail you know but outside of that i think that femme flagging is definitely something that i personally want to explore and i'd really love to see like a resurgence of that specifically that would be so cool okay let's talk about the code so the majority of kinks and fetishes identify the right side as the bottom side or the passive submissive side and the left side as the active side okay the only exceptions to this tend to be for things that are identity based so for identity based fetishism the individual who is being fetishized or like has the identity being fetishized would flag on the left and the person who is fetishizing them also known as a chaser flags on the right the exception to this would be for lavender which flags drag queens uh, specifically where the self identifying drag queen actually flags on the right and the chaser flags on the left cool cool. Now there are a lot of colors and a lot of variations and even more than I'm probably about to list off honestly because the hanky code has such a long history and people just kind of kept expanding it and republishing it and making their own versions, I doubt I'm gonna hit every color. But I'm going to definitely hit some of the most common ones so there is red. Red is the fetishization of fisting. You can professionally talk about it as brachiopractic or brachiovaginal insertion. So fisting. There's dark blue, also navy blue, which represents just interest in anal. Light blue is interest in oral. So For the top or bottom flagging for this, the top is who's receiving the oral and the bottom is who's giving the oral. Yellow and brown represent, you know, those. And I'm not avoiding saying them because I'm like icked out by them. I just don't know if that'll get flagged anywhere or anything. So not gonna risk it, but you know, yellow and brown. There's green for the identification of a sex worker or 304. They were also referred to as a hustler at the time. So like a lot of the time male sex workers were called hustlers and clients were called johns. Some hanky codes would specify whether the color was a lighter dark green. So a dark green represents like age fetishization. I'm not gonna go into too much detail but essentially a darker green would indicate the relationship of a daddy boy or daddy son flagging where on the left you identify as a daddy and on the right you identify as a boy son or daddy hunter so yeah also there is the mustard color which indicates a fetish for a large penis specifically identified as someone who's bigger than eight inches so flagging left means you are the one who's hung and flagging right means you like when people are hung and you are a hung man enthusiast (laughs) in early or like more basic hanky codes black would indicate the use of a whip or like that specific impact play. The top is who engages in the acts of whipping, and the bottom is who receives it. In the extended hanky code, the black is associated with heavy sadomasochism. And this is a more broad definition where the top is the active participant who is giving out the erotic corporal punishment. While the bottom is receiving that punishment, flagging orange on the left identifies a top for someone who's interested in anything anytime. And on the right, flagging orange would indicate nothing now, meaning you are not interested in any sexual activity. That's the early flagging system. If you're using a more updated or expanded hanky code, then for orange it gets a little bit more complicated so the way that it works is that any top is on the left and anything bottom is on the right so there's no way to indicate with orange that you're not interested in anything at all in the updated hanky code. There's also a greenish blue color often described as like a robin's egg blue and that's a fetish for 69ing basically that's you know giving and getting oral simultaneously. In the basic and expanded hanky codes lavender represents the fetishization of drag queens. So the top flags left as someone interested in a drag queen and the bottom flags right as someone who identifies as a drag queen. We went over this briefly earlier. Also, the definition of drag queen has evolved a lot over time and it used to kind of be referring to like cross dressers which aren't quite the same thing as drag queens right a drag queen is a performer and a cross dresser is engaging in a lifestyle so just to kind of make that distinction those words have kind of shifted over time so it's a little bit ambiguous like what exact meaning this was trying to hit back in the day. Also brown green or olive green represents the fetishization of military uniforms yeah (laughs) in a lot of expanded hanky codes the lighter tone of a color represented the lighter version of that color's fetish so let me think of an example okay there's dark blue versus light blue right we talked about both of those dark blue is like fully intercourse and light blue is just oral right so it's kind of like the less extreme of whatever the corresponding color is so that's something that expanded hanky codes do also something that updated hanky codes do is when the single color tones got exhausted like they ran out of colors straight up they started using dual colors and patterns also So for example, there was a safe sex hanky that was created in 1984 by a group in Texas, and this was in response to the AIDS epidemic. It was like a black and white checkered handkerchief that was meant to acknowledge the importance of safe sex practices. So if you were flagging with a black and white checkered handkerchief, that likely indicated that you would want to practice safer sex by using a condom amongst other safer sex practices. Also, people use dual-colored handkerchiefs to indicate racial preferences in times as early as 1983, right? So a non-white ethnic identity is presented as a fetish with a corresponding color. And yeah, I don't love this either, but the colors were black, brown, and yellow for black latino and asian this is deeply problematic right because people are needing to identify their race with a handkerchief color and while black and brown people are commonly referred to as black and brown and that's okay referring to asian people as yellow is not okay not okay so let's just get that straight but it's in our history so yeah there's also that there would be alternating white stripes and with top and bottom role designations to represent whether they were giving or taking oral on these, you know, identity based flags. The primary users of these hanky codes were probably intended to be white because the white stripes were probably meant to indicate white people in ideal layers of bad here but that's what happened can't really get away from the history there as uncomfortable as it is sometimes though if i see anyone today with a handkerchief like that we're boxing wind it up cuz nah <laughs> But yeah, I wanna jump into now the kind of present day implications and like other subcultures that use flagging. First, I wanna talk about pups. (laughs) Pups are such a big, big, big part Of the kink community. If you don't know what a pup is, they are a subculture that take on behavioral characteristics of canines, right? So, in addition to that kind of behavior, pups are also known for a particular type of fetish dress, which includes but is not limited to like harnesses, a stylized dog mask, which is often made from leather, rubber, or neoprene, a collar, gloves, knee pads, And a tail attachment and cute pup-centric t-shirts. There's also the subculture of trans experience, right? So I am a trans person, just putting that out there, I think it's important information, but trans men often adapted a form of the hanky code flagging by using a swatch of plaid fabric as a handkerchief and tucking that into their backpack and that would like indicate that they were a trans person also most recently like younger people and i'm talking young i'm talking like high schoolers have converted the bandana or hanky system into a bracelet hair scrunchie system which is pretty cool and that kind of emulates a similar coding system as you know their adult counterparts teenagers can elect to wear colored bracelets or colored hair scrunchies to indicate that they are queer to other queer high schoolers so you've heard it all from the origins of handkerchiefs in northern india to high schoolers adapting the hanky code for their scrunchies and colored bracelets you've heard it all flagging has and always will be a really integral part of queer culture and I'd really love to see another resurgence of that especially since queer fashion has just come leaps and bounds. Also, I really appreciate getting the opportunity to teach and explain this to people because I think that a lot of people don't know the history of why certain things are linked to queer fashion. Like, I don't think people know why it's such big dyke vibes to wear your keys on your belt loop. You know, it goes all the way back to bikers and biker bars. I hope you enjoyed taking this journey with me. I'm excited to come at you with another piece of queer history next week. And always remember that if you're curious about the sources that I cite or the places that I quote anywhere, you can always go to our website under sources. We have a website! Yes, we have a website. It's bit.ly slash comingoutevil. We don't have other socials yet, but for now, go to our website. We're also available on Spotify, Apple Music, Podbean, and also some podcasts. (laughs) We're working on Google Podcasts, so yeah, go to our website and check it out. Hell yeah. Music by Audionautics.com.